All right, good morning everyone. It's great to see you once again. Uh, today, guess what? What? We're starting a brand new teaching series today, a learning adventure. We are going to walk for the next who knows how many months, as I'm still working on the series, but uh, it's up to 30 weeks. So we're going to be with the Apostle Peter for a while now. And uh, instead of just jumping in and into his letters that we find in the New Testament and just like working through them, I want to take the first few weeks anyway to, to get to know Peter. Because sometimes we can read the Bible and we read about the characters, the people we, uh, you know, that we find in Scripture and kind of see them as two-dimensional. There's just this like name that kind of was with Jesus or interacting with Jesus or in the Old Testament. And I think we, we do ourselves harm when we don't step back and realize, hey, these were people that like us. They were people kind of like us. Even the apostles, the disciples were a lot like us. They got up out of bed in the morning and put their pants... Well, I'm not sure they wore pants back then, but, you know, they put their, I don't know, equivalent, their robe on, their sash and their sandals, whatever uh, Bible people did. But they, they felt hungry. They felt uncertain. They felt scared. They felt excitement. Uh, they had all the human emotions. Why? Because they were human, just like us. So our teaching series is called Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages. Why do I call it Rock of Ages? Well, it's kind of a play on words because Peter's name means rock, right? Jesus changes his name from uh, Simon to Peter, and they call him Simon Peter. Uh, Upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus said to Peter. I think this will be time well spent because I think anytime we can become more familiar with those people that spent intensive, extended time with Jesus, we can gain insight and we too can grow. So today we begin walking with the Apostle Peter, looking at his life, listening to his words, and uh, I think we will all be the better for it. So today's uh, message is called ambivalence. Have you ever found yourself in a situation in which you had mixed emotions? Have you ever felt mixed emotions? Uh, Maybe you were having a good time, but you were also feeling a sense of discomfort, or you were maybe uncomfortable for some reason. Maybe you were feeling normal, but you also had a sense of alarm. Have you ever felt this? I mean, like two things at once, uh, conflicting, opposing impulses inside at the same time. Human beings are capable of a broad range of emotions. And at times, we are capable of holding more than one emotion at the same time. Uh, There's probably a better word for it in German, because there always is. I have on good authority, which means a, a trustworthy friend, that in German, there is actually a word for, thank you, I have been visited enough. So someone's visiting with you, and it's, you know, in, in the Midwest, you just kind of slap your knee and say, well, that means it's kind of coming to an end, you're, you're visiting, you know, and you kind of like stand up or amble toward the door like, well, good seeing you. Well, in German, I guess there's a word that you can say toward the end of a visiting time that means, thank you, I have been visited enough, meaning it's time for you to leave. Beautiful, right? I also heard that the, in German, there's a word that means... Uh, having a face that looks like it needs to be slapped. What a glorious word. This person has a face that looks like it is in desperate need of slapping. Why do we not have words for this? We have to give a whole sentence. But in German, apparently, there's a word that means that guy has a face that looks like it needs to be slapped. I want to find this word, and I want to know this word. 
Anyway, there's probably a better word for it in German, but in English, the best one for this feeling of two uh, conflicting emotions at the same time or feeling two things at once, the best word we have in English is ambivalence. Ambivalence, feeling two sometimes contradictory things simultaneously. Are you familiar with that word, ambivalence? You've probably heard it, I guarantee it, but did you know what it meant? Ambivalence means, according to Merriam-Webster, having or showing simultaneous and contradictory attitudes or feelings towards something or someone. During the uh, winter of 2021, I felt some ambivalence. I felt ambivalence during the winter of 2021. When we should have been expecting snow in December, Missouri was recording its warmest December since the year 1898. Now, many of my friends were announcing on social media how awesome it was to be wearing tank tops and flip-flops in December. And I, too, I enjoyed running shirtless. Uh, no one else enjoyed that, but I enjoyed it. Uh, running shirtless during those unusually warm winter days, but I also had a sense of unease as if something wasn't quite right. Maybe something was a little bit wrong actually with this picture. Even though it was a balmy and comfortable uh, upper 70s, deep inside I felt a, a, a sense of anxiety. This isn't how it's supposed to be at Christmas time. This is great, but I'm not sure it's supposed to be like this at Christmas time. Is this how it all unravels? Is this, is how, is this how it ends? Are, are we cheering on the harbingers of our doom from our lawn chairs in December? Uh, these are the things I worried about in the winter of 2021. Is Earth's seasonal rhythm spiraling out of control as the jet stream and ocean currents slow down and as glaciers melt and tundra thaws due to climate change? He asks himself as he reclines in jean shorts and a Hawaiian shirt getting a winter suntan just a few days before Christmas. Is that effectively taking you back to that time? Sitting with me on that lawn chair? Yeah, that's what I was feeling. This is great, but this maybe isn't so great. <laughs> This is really enjoyable, but maybe this isn't really good for us, right? Uh, so I felt these two things at once. Uh, another time I felt ambivalence in 2021 was when I was reading a Cormac McCarthy novel, uh, riding on a train between Berlin and Prague. Now, anyone familiar with Cormac McCarthy? Cormac McCarthy, in my humble yet very accurate opinion, is one of the greatest living uh, masters of fiction. I, I think he writes some of the best fiction of anyone who's still alive, for sure. Uh, he, wrote wrote, uh, he wrote a book you've probably heard of called The Road. Uh, he's my favorite book from him is called uh, All the Pretty Horses. Uh, but he's written several. Um, although I, Here's the thing about Cormac McCarthy, though. Although I marvel at his writing, I often don't really like his stories. If you've read Cormac McCarthy, maybe you, you understand what I'm talking about. I love his writing, but I don't really like his stories sometimes. This past year, uh, I read two of his novels. I kind of forced myself to finish them, actually. Uh, no Country for Old Men and Blood Meridian. Um, and with both of these stories, I was stunned. At the same time, I was stunned by his writing's beauty and texture, and I was stunned by the story's brutality and despair. At the same time, don't know what to do with that sometimes. In that same moment, I wanted to stop reading because it was so bleak and dark, yet I couldn't stop reading because it was so well written. You ever found yourself in that trap? 
Maybe you've read a lot of like Flannery O'Connor. Uh, when I read Flannery O'Connor, I kind of get this same sense like, oh man, this is dark. This is gritty, but it's also really beautiful too. Uh, so maybe you know what, you're, what that feels like from reading like Flannery O'Connor or other authors. Here's the thing, even after finishing both of those novels from Cormac McCarthy, I wasn't sure what to think. Did I like them or did I dislike them? Were they even meant to be liked? You know, I mean, was, was Cormac McCarthy writing this story hoping that someone would, someone would give it the thumbs up? Like, great, <laughs> I'm not sure. There was a certain tension in what I felt about both of these books, and I can't help but think that that tension wasn't part of McCarthy's intent. If you've read enough of Cormac McCarthy, maybe you start to get this sense like, I think he wants us to feel this tension. I think he wants us to have this level of discomfort, this longing for something to break through, to bring light. Uh, about halfway through the novel called Blood Meridian, uh, the main character who is only called the kid, there's no, no name, just the kid. The kid is the main character. Well, the kid has been cut off from his, he's been separated from his outlaw gang that he's kind of fallen in with. He's fallen in with an outlaw gang. He's been separated from them for days. And he is making his way through the barren desert and it is freezing. He's making his way slowly through the desert uh, and it's freezing. His hands and his feet, they're numb. He is in fear of actually freezing to death when up ahead one night, he sees something. He sees up in the distance, in the darkness, he sees something ablaze. It is a tree on fire in the middle of the desert. It has been set aflame by lightning. Radiating into the empty darkness is an oasis of warmth and of heat a sanctuary of solace in a wilderness of violence and chaos. There's this tree. Readers unexpectedly find themselves with the kid in a strange moment of peace and rest juxtaposed against the bloody, desperate storyline. It comes unexpectedly and you find yourself in this moment, you're like, is it okay to rest? Is it okay to take in the warmth of this moment? It was a lone tree burning on the desert, a heraldic tree that the passing storm had left afire. The solitary pilgrim drawn up before it had traveled far to be here, and he knelt in the hot sand and held his numbed hands out while all about in that circle attended companies of lesser auxiliaries routed forth into the inordinate day small owls that crouched silently and stood from foot to foot, and tarantulas and sulpugas and vinegaroons and the vicious Miguel spiders and the beaded lizards with mouths black as a chow dog's, deadly to man, and the little desert basilisks that jet blood from their eyes and the, sand, the small sand vipers like seemly gods, silent and the same in Jeddah in Babylon." A constellation of ignited eyes that edged the ring of light, all bound in a precarious truth before this torch, whose brightness had set back the stars in their sockets. Holy moly! What a scene! 
You see it? He's there. He crawls up to this burning tree, and as he's taking in the warmth and sitting in the light, he looks around, he sees all these glowing, reflecting eyes all around the perimeter of light. He, too, is joining with this company of desert creatures who they, too, are surviving by taking in this warmth and this heat. These are animals that could kill him. They're venomous. They're, they have poisons. They can do things that, uh, that, that would no under normal circumstances, they might... Uh, run from him, or they might attack him. But in this moment, they're all sitting there being saved by this warmth and this light. In this unexpected, sublime moment, the kid, and then us as the reader, we find ourselves in an ambivalent sort of tension. A tension of, of desperation and peace, of pain and of comfort, of being lost yet being found, of void and of warmth of fear and of welcome. Come morning, the kid awakens. He's fallen asleep in the warmth, and he's fallen asleep in the warm sand from this tree. In the morning, the kid awakens in the sunlight, lying near the burned-out, blackened tree. He looks around, and all the desert creatures are gone, and he arises and continues on his way. He continues on his journey, I try to imagine the kid's feelings. What was the kid feeling in this experience, lying there in that morning sunlight? How did he entertain both the desperation and peril of his situation, yet also hold fast to the recollection of warmth and comfort he felt as he was in a deep sleep? Do you feel that tension? How, how strange and jarring that situation must have been. Here's the thing. We all desire a simple life. I think at some level we all desire a life that is free from conflict, a, free that is, a life that is free from, from, from tension and unnecessary complexity. But if you've lived for more than a couple days, <laughs> you've realized um, in the actual living of a human life, it's a little more complicated than that. We can do whatever we want to avoid complexity. Uh, to keep it, we can do whatever we want to try to keep it simple and minimize conflict and tension. But it finds us. It finds us. The actual living of a human life brings it to us. So does that mean we are doomed? Are we doomed to situations that elicit conflicting feelings and responses? Are we forever destined to be uh, to feel these contradictions in our emotions? More specifically, as a Christ follower, does the life spent following Jesus, does it lead us only to green pastures and only beside quiet waters? Or does following Jesus lead us necessarily also through valleys of the shadow of death? In my experience, guys, and likely in yours, it's the latter. Sometimes by being faithful, by following hard on the heels of Jesus himself, we find ourselves led into difficult, <laughs> trying situations where there's no easy way out. There's no simple solution. By following Jesus, sometimes we're led into the valley of the shadow of death. It's almost as if this tension that we feel is part of the journey. That ambivalence is part of how we grow in Christ-likeness. Because if you look at Jesus' life, he was definitely in situations where there was tension. And there was conflict. And he was God himself. He was God in the flesh. And he comes and he still finds himself in conflict. Feeling rejection. Feeling stress. 
We are daily encountering hard decisions. We are daily encountering battles against the flesh. We are pestered by disagreements and we are plagued by mixed emotions. And it's in the midst of all these challenges, in the midst of all this ambivalence arising in us and around us that we are invited to come close to Jesus, to cling to Him, to rest in Him, and to rely upon the warmth of His Word and His presence. In the midst of all that, Jesus says, Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you what? rest for your souls. I'll give you rest. As we find ourselves fumbling our way through the freezing desert with numb hands and feet, that's when we see up ahead the light of Christ burning brightly in the wasteland, right there in our midst, beckoning us to come close. We gather around Him. We lay down our burdens, and that is when we find true rest for our souls. So today we begin a new teaching series called Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, in which we will study the life and writings of one of Jesus' main disciples, the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter. We will get to know Peter, uh, where he was from, what he was like, how he came to Jesus, and all, how all of these things shaped his faith, his theology, and his leadership. As we get started, I can't help but notice how much tension Peter must have felt in following Jesus. How often Peter had competing feelings. How these competing feelings must have risen within him. How familiar Peter must have been with ambivalence. Feeling two things at the same time when following Jesus. We see it in his words and we see it in his actions. Uh, Times when he is both believing and doubting. When he is boasting with certainty and then collapsing in doubt. When he is trusting in Jesus, but then also lashing out in fear. Sounds like us, right? Man, I do that all the time. I think about Peter when he cuts off Malchus's ear as Jesus is being arrested. I think about Peter walking on the water toward Jesus, but then sinking in the waves. Or, or I think of Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus blazing in all of his glory and then offering to set up tents to turn that place into a shrine, to somehow control it and make it a place of certainty. Like, hey, we could really make a big deal out about this and, and make sense of this by making a shrine for you guys, right? Cool. Or I think of Peter following Jesus boldly after his arrest into the very courtyard of the officials, but then denying Jesus three times when accused of knowing him. Clearly, Peter was a lot like us. Peter was a swirl of feelings, and he was amb ambivalent to the core. Peter, like us, was a study in contradictions. And don't let that be off-putting. Maybe let that be inviting. And we're not talking about Peter, you know, like, oh, the Apostle Peter will never be like that guy. Guys, in a lot of ways, more than we're probably comfortable admitting, we're a lot like Peter too. We can find common ground with the Apostle Peter, that kind of person that Jesus sought out, called to himself, and invested in day in and day out, very, very personally and intimately. That's the kind of person we are too. In his moments of greatest clarity and honesty, we find Peter 
holding fast. And this is, I think, what we all need to see about Peter. Even though he vacillated, even though he was up and down, <laughs> near and close, or close and far away, uh, believing and doubting, notice this. In spite of all that, in the moments of his greatest clarity, when pressed the hardest, we find that Peter is holding fast. Peter returns again and again to Jesus, trusting in the truth, the life, and the warmth that radiates from Jesus' life and his love for all of us. When it comes down to it, those times where Jesus looks at Peter and says, What about you? We find that Peter's feet are truly planted on the rock. He may get blown this way and that, knocked down, but his feet always find their way to be planted on the rock. So there's two stories I want to start with from Scripture. Two times where Jesus is interacting with people, and then he's interacting with the disciples, and then he's interacting with Peter. <laughs> I think these will frame our, uh, the beginnings of our thinking about Peter for this learning adventure. Turn to Ma Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. This section in your Bible might be called Peter's Declaration About Jesus, and that's what it is. But let's, let's start in verse 13 of chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was Messiah. Now turn over to uh, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we'll look at verses 60 through 69. Oops. Got a little carried away there. All right, here we go. Oh, man. Ugh. All right, I'm back. Okay, John chapter 6, verses 60 through 69. Many of his disciples said, This is very hard to understand. How can anyone say this? Now, what, what Jesus has been talking about is, I am the true bread of heaven, so come eat my, <laughs> eat my flesh, drink my blood. One of those not-so-popular teachings of Jesus where people are like, Ew, what? Eat your flesh, drink your blood. So in verse 60, it picks up, many of his disciples, those who had been following after him, notice their, their lowercase d disciples, which just means a, a student of or follower of. Uh, the big d disciples, the 12, uh, that's not who he's talking about here. Uh, many of his disciples said, this is very hard to accept or understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think of if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, This is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, 
Are you also going to leave? Verse 68, Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? To whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. So in this scene, this passage, uh, Jesus has let fly with, with perhaps one of his hardest teachings. Jesus did this too. Sometimes, conspicuously, when the crowd had grown the largest, that's when he unfurled one of these like, teachings that people were like, whoa, no way. What? what? Okay, I got to go. I got to go, Jesus. Um, you know, you got to love me more than you love your mom and dad. You got to love me more than you love your wife and kids. If you aren't willing to give that up, you don't have any place in me. They're like, oh, gee whiz, okay. Uh, and then, the, you know, this passage we looked at before that, where it's like, hey, eat my flesh, drink my blood. <laughs> like, eh, cannibalism. Not cool then, not cool now. <laughs> you know, people were out. They're like, I'm not, uh, that, that's gross. I don't understand it. And if I do understand it, I don't want to understand it. Because it sounds like you're telling me to eat your body. And I don't want to do that. Okay, so people left. He let fly with one of his hardest teachings. Upon hearing it, many people who were following Jesus, they deserted him. They headed home, shaking their heads, saying, Who can accept this? Okay, we gave you a fair shake, Jesus. But really, that's too much. Who can accept this? And then Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he asks them, What about you? You heard what I said. What about you? Are you also going to leave? And here, it's here that Peter makes his most powerful confession of faith. Despite all that was going on, all the difficulty he's had in hearing what Jesus said, when Jesus asked him, what do you say? What do you? What about you? It's here that Peter says his confession of faith over and against his own volatility, his own ambivalence, planting his feet firmly in his belief that Jesus is the source of life. Lord, to whom would we go? To leave you, to, 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 to abandon you would, would be to our own peril. Who else would we go to? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. I love how it sets that out there. We believe as an issue of faith, but also we've seen enough. We've heard enough. We've, we've walked with you long enough to know as well. To leave you now would be to commit some sort of travesty inside. To deny something very real that we know and understand and believe. It'd be of detriment. It would deny something in us because we believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. For us to leave now would be, would be bad. It would be sin. To know and turn away? No. <laughs> I won't do that. I won't do that. Regardless of his erratic and complicated behavior at times, Peter is unflagging in his holding fast to Jesus, believing underneath it all that Jesus is the truest true. Jesus is the realest real. He is the way that leads to life. In the midst of everything else, all the other competing agendas and feelings, Jesus is the way that leads to life. So I'm going to stick with you. 
believing that if I follow you faithfully, if I, if I endure in following after you, we will someday arrive at life. In that, Peter, the Apostle Peter is a lot like us, or rather, we are a lot like the Apostle Peter. I think we too acknowledge our fickleness and our inconsistency, but at the same time, at the end of it all, we do place our faith in Jesus. We cling to that hope that He holds out to us in the gospel. That's what I want for us. That's what I want for me, that if, even though I get battered and bruised in life, at the end of it all, my feet are planted in Jesus. The hope of the gospel holds me fast. I want to be just like Peter in that. So as we begin, let's start here. Let's see ourselves in solidarity with Peter. Yes, being a little willy-nilly in our faith sometimes. Sometimes awesome, sometimes not. But all the while, all the while never flagging in our desire to truly know and to truly follow Jesus. For He is indeed the Lord. He is indeed the Holy One of God, the one who truly has the words that give eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the Word and the, the comfort we find that we can look at Peter, all his ups and downs, all his fears and his failures, all his boasting and just like loudmouthedness, <laughs> and know that deep inside there was just this seed of faith that was unshakable, and all the while it was germinating. It was putting down roots. So when it came just down to it, when Jesus turned to him and asked him, when pressed, he always said, no, Jesus, you're it, man. You're all I've truly got in this life. That which you've given me, that's all I have. Jesus asks, are you going to leave too? And he says, no, that'd be crazy. That'd be foolish for me to leave because you have the words that lead to eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. I can't not have faith. I can't not follow you. God, I pray that we would see Peter and we would uh, see him and, and recognize ourselves in that and just understand that we are a lot like him and we're in a similar relationship. We find ourselves in, in, in close proximity to you. We, we sent you at work in our lives, around our lives. And uh, I think it's good for us. It's true that we acknowledge our ambivalence, our contradictory feelings, our ups and downs, all the tension. But God, I pray that we would just plant our feet in faith, saying, God, whatever happens today, I will hold fast to Jesus. I will believe that at the end of, this all, uh, at the end of it all, this leads to life. This leads to salvation. This leads to new creation. And I want to be a part of that. I believe that Jesus is true, and I believe He's telling the truth. I believe that Jesus is real, and He's leading me into ultimate reality. So God, I pray for my friends here. I pray that they would uh, uh, deepen their commitment, acknowledge their uh, need for faith, but then also the strength of their faith, that which the Holy Spirit is enabling in them through faith in Jesus. I pray also for my friends who've never trusted Jesus. I pray that they would hear invitation to know that even though the path may lead through dark and difficult times, it ultimately leads to life. The Bible tells us that uh, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus, uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the darkness and the cold. Welcomed into the warmth and the light of Christ. 
welcomed into a way of living that leads to goodness, truth, and beauty. So God, I pray you place that truth deep in our hearts and that each person here would hear that as invitation. Those who have been following Jesus, that would be called into deeper walk with Him, greater faithfulness. For those who have never trusted Jesus, I pray that they would hear the welcome, hear the invitation to place your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a moment to just sit, interact with the Lord, pray. Maybe write down your thoughts for today. And here in about a minute, we'll sing another song. But this is an important moment, and let's not rush through it. Make the most of this opportunity.